Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Pastor Jim Remington. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. We're in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege to continue our worship of you by studying your word. Father, I know according to your word, the Holy Spirit is in this room right now drawing unbelievers to the cross. Father, your Holy Spirit indwells every single Bible-believing Christian this morning. We thank you and praise you that we're sealed until the day of redemption. You'll never lose us. You'll never forsake us. And Father, we do what Jesus said, ask, seek, knock. So we ask for more of the Holy Spirit this morning as we study your word. This is your word, your love letter to humanity. And we have the privilege to freely read this. But as we're going to study here at the church in Ephesus, maybe we've become lazy. Maybe we've become overcomfortable. Maybe we have found ourselves entrapped in a certain sin. Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to convict us, rebuke us, encourage us, exhort us, whatever the case may be. You know us individually. You are an intimate God. And you know every single Bible-believing Christian intimately. So, Father, deal with us individually. Deal with our marriages. Deal with our families. Deal with us corporately. We want to be on the straight and narrow. For the days are evil, as your son said it would be. And so we're looking forward to your son's soon return, but until then, we want to be found faithful, doing the business of you, Father, the spiritual business that you'd have us to do. I pray for the gift of teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So now if you're new or visiting, is all you need to do is continue to read your Bible. Maybe go back 10 verses. When you come across some verses, you go, yeah, what is that? If you just go back 10 verses, maybe go forward 10 verses, do a little cross-referencing out of concordance, it will become clear. Not just you're going to understand it all. I don't understand it all. If anybody tells you they understand it all, that they're sinning because they're a liar. <laughs> Liars go to hell. So they're sinning. Nobody knows it all. But, you know, that's one of the greatest discouragements of a person reading their Bible. Well, I don't understand. No, that's called laziness. Because if you want to understand, God will show you something. You going to figure it all out? No, I don't. Not even close. Don't worry about what you don't know. Allow the Holy Spirit to teach you what you could know. And so you just look back at verse 10. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So when you come across something, you go, I don't get what that is. Just go back or go forward. The Holy Spirit will show you. So in this particular case, as Jesus continues here with the first church, he mentions... 
seven stars, seven golden lampstands. I didn't address it last week, so I'm going to address it this week. Now, in the scriptures, we see that angels have appeared to humans. Because some people say, well, it says angels. Well, we also see that some of them doing spiritual warfare over areas or countries, while it appears that others are assigned to each and every believer. Yet angels, so is John writing to literally angels? Angels cannot repent. Angels cannot be thrown into prison. Angels cannot deny the faith. Now, they have free will, and Satan rebelled with, we believe, one-third of the heavenly host. But they don't have the faith that we have. We have the faith. The church received the faith. And they cannot hold fast to the doctrine that's presented to the church. So I have to conclude that Jesus is referencing the pastors of these churches, Because when you look up that word, the word means angel, but it also means messenger. Messenger. And the only time that I see in the scriptures that an angel propagates the gospel is during the second half of the Great Tribulation where there's going to be an angel flying throughout heaven sharing the glorious gospel. That's the only place. That responsibility is for you and me, not for angels. So if it's not an angel, it has to be the pastor, the messenger of God's word. Not just teaching the word, but living the word out personally. Next, we see that Jesus has the messengers in his hand. Notice these things says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Praise God. But don't the principles that we're going to learn about apply to every believer? Absolutely. And we should all use the information given to these churches to evaluate our walk with the Lord. But in context of the verses, who is Jesus talking to? I see it as he's talking directly to the pastors of these churches. Because if the pastor is not sharing the word, how is the church going to grow? Which direction is the church going to take? We're seeing it, guys. We're seeing it. Look at the cathedrals in Europe. Look at the the churches over in distant lands. Mosque. Rock. (laughs) One cathedral has a rock-climbing wall, Jim, in it. Coffee shop? Axe-throwing? So if the pastor is not focused, where's the church going to go? We'll, we'll, we'll continue to address that. You see, a pastor is supposed to feed the flock of God with the whole word of God. Why is that? Because healthy sheep will help produce other healthy sheep. It's not about positive confession. None of that garbage. It's about the word of God. Now, accountability might sound scary, but actually, I take comfort in this verse. Because when you read the verse, it says, hey, you pastors, I'm holding you accountable. Yes, the rest of the church is accountable as well. But you as a pastor, you're supposed to be leading, guiding, directing the church. The Lord is holding me in his right hand, and in the scriptures, the right hand is symbolic of power and authority. I don't have to worry about the enemy behind every bush. You know, some Christians are just the enemy, the Satan is behind every bush. No, he's not. He can only be in one place at one time. Fallen angels can only be in one place at one time. And if we take the scriptures for what we think they are, one third, that means two thirds of the angels have not fallen. They're not behind every bush either. But as a Christian, do you even realize that the Holy Spirit dwells 
within you? Who cares about an angel? I got God dwelling within me. So don't get hung up on this. Some people, some churches get all hung up on these little things because it's all about emotions. It's all about emotions, emotions, emotions. No, it is not. It's about the facts of God's word. God literally dwells within every single Bible-believing Christian. So don't get focused on the enemy. Matter of fact, the word tells us that Satan has to, and other demons have to, fallen demons have to approach the throne of God before they can touch my life. So what am I worrying about? I'm not. Personally, I don't. And I encourage you not to do that as well. Remember what John did when he saw Jesus? He fell at his feet as a dead man. But Jesus reached out, touched John, and said what? It's in your Bible. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. But who's going to get elected next year? Do not be afraid. Read your Bible today. Register. Vote. If you did the daily reading and our daily reading today, as a matter of fact, it says that God raises up and God brings down. So I'm going to do my part. I'm not going to worry about the rest. I'll leave God. You know, God can take care of it. He's spoken in, Jesus spoken into being. I think Jesus can take care of the election if it's stolen or not stolen, whatever the case may be. God has a plan and a purpose behind all of that. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. You see, Jesus started this earth, and he will fold this earth. Read your Bible. He will fold this earth up like a garment. Toss it into a fire and create a new heaven and a new earth. Now that's authority. And that's who is watching over every believer. Don't be afraid of what's happening or going to happen in these last days. But rather pray. Pray and pray some more. Be available for God's work to be accomplished through your life, through his word. There are people going to hell in the stores. Your neighbors are going to hell. Coworkers are going to hell. Don't get so caught up in all this other nonsense that you forget why God puts you in your workplace, why God puts you in your neighborhood, why, puts you, why God puts you with your family members. Don't get so politically involved that you're having screaming matches over parties and you forget, do they even know Jesus? I'm so concerned about voting next year, do they even know Jesus? What happens if they die this week? Did they know Jesus? No, but they knew that I was voting big whoop. Be available for God's work to be accomplished. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. We're to go forth and be a minister of light. Not a minister of any party. Not a minister of an agenda. We're a minister of Jesus Christ. Do all those other things, but make sure you keep them in their proper perspective. I'm going to read this out of the New Living Translation. It was just referenced during one of the baptisms. And all of this is a gift from God, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, who brought us back to himself through Christ, and God has given us this task of what? Of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. The world, 8 billion people, could be, this very moment, could be reconciled to Christ. If they would turn to God, repent, ask for forgiveness, all 8 billion people would receive that reconciliation. Because why? All 8 billion people alive today received it at the cross. But they're not all saved. You have to make that personal commitment. But every person received it at the cross. They just haven't appropriated it yet. 
no longer counting God's sin, people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, Jesus never sinned, he was a spotless lamb of God, to be the offering for our sin. You know, that that broke, the screen broke. We've had that screen for 22 years. That's pretty good, praise God. It's a bummer it's not there this morning. I know it's a little inconvenient, but it's been working for 22 years. Before I was 22 years old, I broke down a lot. And I was sinning a whole lot. You only have to sin once to not get into heaven. Remember who you are. You're a saint. And God has covered all your sin. Let somebody else know the good news. To be an offering for our sin that we could be made right with God through Christ. The last thing I'd like to mention here about this verse is what I really love about these verses is that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. Or he's what? He's in the midst of the church. And that's where every church should desire him to be. Are we seeing this universally? Unfortunately, no. Other agendas are the focal point. BLM. Social justice. Racism. Money. Whatever it might be is the center. It's like, where's Jesus? Oh, yeah, we'll get to him eventually, but... You know, we got to talk about all these other things because this is where we live and we got to be relevant. No, you don't. No, you don't. Lift up the Word of God. The Word of God is relevant. If, you're lifting, if we're lifting up the Word of God regularly, verse by verse, it's going to be very relevant because there is only one race, right? The human race. So don't buy into all this nonsense. Sad, just trying to cause division. You see, nothing else should be at the center. No political agenda, no personal agenda. Thinking of the pastorate, guys, okay? No power agenda. If the pastor and the flock, because this cannot just be for the pastor, but I look at this as addressing the pastor, but it applies to all of us. If the pastor and the flock keeps Jesus at the center of the church, everyone, everyone will be blessed with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And what's the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Galatians 5, 23a. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. Um, going back to King James Version. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Would there be any church issues? Just think that simple verse right there. Would there be any church issues if that fruit was abundant in every Bible-believing Christian's life? There would be no church issues. Because we'd be seeking the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Color the carpet? Who cares? Tear it out. I'll take a blessing from that list anytime. And these are the attributes that the world needs to see in us as God's ambassadors. They don't need to see hating. They got that down. They don't need to know that we hate another party. We hate what they're doing. It's called sin. We shouldn't be surprised that they're doing it. So we hate the sin, but we got to love them, even if it's at a healthy distance. See, John 8, 12 says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And then in Matthew 5, we read this, You are the light of the world. 
Well, I thought Jesus said he was the light of the world. He was. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And we already learned what? That we're ambassadors for Christ. So he has given us the light. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let, here's the exhortation for you and me this morning. Let your light so shine before the believers that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Is that what it says? It doesn't say that, does it? It says men. And you look up the word men there, it's mankind. Let your light so shine before mankind, male and female, believer, unbeliever, the person that hates you, the person that flips you off going down the freeway, the person that cusses you out in the store. Let your light shine. It's, it's easy to do something back. That's the flesh. That's not letting your light shine. Again, I'm not saying this is easy. <laughs> but via the Holy Spirit, it becomes way easier. Now, looking back to Revelation 119, we see this, right? The things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The Holy Spirit gives us an outline that makes Revelation a little easier to follow. John was instructed to write the things that he had seen, which would be chapter 1 of Revelation. Jesus in his glorified state. The things which are will be covered in chapters 2 and 3. The accountability slash instructional letters to the seven churches and the things which will take place after this will be covered in the rest of the letter. So it's a very simple outline. Now I'm going to give you a little history because we want to get some background of who's Jesus writing to. Ephesus means the desired one, the desired one, and was the largest city in the province of Asia during biblical times, estimated to be at least 300,000 people, at least. No electricity, no wonderful running water toilets, 300,000 people. It was the main Roman city in that area. It had a library, listen, it had a library of over 200,000 manuscripts. Printing press wasn't invented, guys. 200,000 over handwritten volumes. It had a favorable seaport trade center, making it a banking and economic center of the known world. It was also recognized as a cultural city, which was very impressive buildings and latest inconveniences. Almost sounds like New York City or maybe San Francisco. A city that had an outdoor amphitheater that could seat 25,000 people and is still visible to this day. It was also a city of worship. It was known for the Temple of Artemis, Roman name for Diana. This temple was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world having 127 columns of marble, with the overall height of the building being 60 feet. It was also financially supported by over 1,000 temple prostitutes. They would go throughout the city, eliciting their trade, and you, whether you're married or not, could just say, well, honey, you know, I'm, I'm going down to the temple to worship. I'll be back in a few hours. Your wife pretty much knew what that meant. That's just a minor description of the culture that the church was born into, raised and lived in. You see, this was the same city that Paul visited on his second missionary journey in which a church was established. 
At the beginning of his third missionary journey, he resided there for three years, Acts 20.31. So we can know for certain that Paul taught them about the greatest gift of what? Love. As we've already mentioned in earlier studies, the Apostle John was the pastor or overseer of this church for possibly 30 years. Think about that. They would have known about love. They would have been taught about love. John, who was, what, the beloved, was their pastor for possibly 30 years, most likely visiting these seven churches that are referenced here. Timothy, Paul's traveling companion, also pastored this city, and early on, the church was blessed to have Apollos teaching them the word of God. So again, this was not a little church off the beaten path of life in Queen Creek. It was right in the middle of a pagan world, having to deal with real-life situations. And as I just mentioned, it was a church that was definitely founded on the greatest gift of all, love. That's what we're going to be looking at here, love. Now, as we move through these seven letters written to seven specific churches, we're going to see a pattern as the Lord addresses each church. There's evaluation. Then there's judgment, not condemnation, but honest appraisal. And lastly, there's a solution or direction to take about their judgment. In 1 Peter 4, we read this. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Are you and I going to suffer for being a Christian? Absolutely. It's not popular. It used to be popular to be a Christian in America. It's not popular anymore. It is not popular. They're coming after us. And that's fine. That's good for us. It's going to refine us. It's going to make us stronger. So Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, Revelation 2.2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Remember, John's writing this probably 50 to 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've gotten some history now, so this is not a young church per se. This church has been established for quite a, quite a few decades here. And what I like about this is I know, Jesus says, I know. Not that I've heard from somebody else. I know. You know, how often do we jump on the bandwagon of incorrect judgment because we've heard something? Remember, Jesus has already told John that he is holding on to the pastor and that he is in the midst of the church. So Jesus is not sharing secondhand information here, but showing John that he knows what's taking place within the church, within the church that John oversaw and pastored. Notice that well that the Ephesians were commended by Jesus and commended very strongly about their ability to work. Notice that. They worked hard in the ministry, as well as using a doctrinally sound system to test those who were coming along and trying to fleece the flock. That's a great acknowledgement. 
So there are a few things that we can take note of here. The Ephesians didn't mess with those who were practicing evil deeds. They were intolerant of sin. You know, we went on our vacation a few weeks ago, and in one of the Airbnbs we stayed at, there was a little little bumper sticker on the side of a bookshelf. Be intolerant of intolerance. Really? Okay, that don't make any sense. I couldn't take it off. It wasn't my house, but I'm like, okay, whatever. Be intolerant of intolerance. You see, they were intolerant of false teaching. We should be intolerant in love. Speak the truth in love. Don't burn anybody's house down. Don't throw rocks through windows. They didn't put up with the cultural nonsense that was prevalent in their day. So when people say the Bible's not relevant, they're not reading their Bible. This is very relevant. You already just heard a little bit of history. Worse than America. But they didn't put up with it within the church. That's where every Bible-believing church should be. They were willing to take a stand for doctrinal truth, and Jesus commends them for that. For a Bible-believing Christian today, we are labeled as intolerant if we take a stand against what the world calls normal now. We are labeled as intolerant if we do not conform to the mindset of the world's system. As the world walks further and further away from God's truth found in the Word, true believers in the Word are going to receive persecution from this world system. That's just a guarantee. It's a natural consequence of separating ourselves from the world system. But the Ephesian believers were more than willing to suffer. First century church. They were more than willing to suffer through that persecution, being martyred for Christ. Many of you have heard this. Maybe it's your first time. They estimate three to five million Christians were martyred for Christ in the first 300 years of the church. Three to five million Christians died in the early church. There was no health and wealth nonsense. Rome was saying, you either turn or you're going to burn. As Christians, we use that in a different phrase. You either turn to Christ or you're going to burn in hell. We don't burn people. We don't promote hate. None of that nonsense. But they were not afraid to walk in that truth. How about you? As we read this letter, how about you? As you've heard that history, now you get a little bit of history. You can study for years of it. But just with that little bit of knowledge, how about you? How about me? How about us as a church? We have to ask ourselves these questions. So here we have the evaluation. Now comes the judgment or conviction. Nevertheless... I have this against you. You have left your first love. After that wonderful commendation, the only thing that Jesus says about this church is you left your first love. Interesting. Jesus brings the problem right to the forefront. You have left, not that you have lost. Not that you have misplaced. You just left it. Matthew 22, 36 says this. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And when you look up neighbor, who's your neighbor? You don't have to raise your hand. But who is your neighbor? Right now, your neighbor is sitting to your right. Your neighbor is sitting to your left. Your neighbor is in front of you. Your neighbor is behind you. Your neighbor is any given person at any given time. You're driving down the freeway. Your neighbor is the idiot driving next to you. That's your neighbor. And if you realize that, you won't be going, you're an idiot. A lot of times people think neighbor. Oh, well, you know, my neighbor is... Li-. No, 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 no. Right now. Right now. Somebody's your neighbor. How are you dealing with that? How, how are you loving them? Somehow the church in Ephesus had forgotten these, those simple truths and moved away from that, what they had first that brought them to the Lord. Agape. Agape love. Unconditional, selfless, committed love. They were now busy doing things They're most likely active in their community as well as their church. And when you look at the evaluation by Jesus here, it's a really good appraisal. I mean, it's fantastic. Outwardly, they were performing. I mean, that's fantastic. Inwardly, they were lacking. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen... Repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from his place unless you repent. This is a word that is very seldom used in the church these days. Repent? Oh, we might offend somebody if we repent. Repent means to turn. To turn from what? I was listening to a YouTube last night about the Christian music industry and they asked one of the top, one of the top Christian music female artists today, one of the top ones, is homosexuality a sin on a radio talk show? That's a pretty simple question. And you know what she said? Well, I don't know. I have a lot of friends that are homosexual, and, and I just don't know. I mean, she's got phenomenal albums out there. She's on the top of the charts, and she doesn't know if homosexuality is a sin. People are looking up to her. People are raising her up. Guys, this is the church. She's a member of the church, and she doesn't know if homosexuality is a sin. It's a sin. So is gossiping. So is abusing prescription drugs. It's not, we, we're not going to single out one sin and say, well, this is the sin above all sins, which some people will do. No, no, it's sin. Just call it what it is. Yes, it is sin. It's falling short. You need to repent. They need to repent. They need to turn from that sin. They need to turn, return from gambling and losing all the money. They need to turn from having fits of rage. And blowing everybody away within arm's reach. We need to, there's various sins. Jesus says, unless you repent. They need to turn. Whatever was going on in their hearts, they needed to turn. Now we know that he is not talking mechanics. But he's addressing the lack of love 
in the mechanics. He's already complimented them on the mechanics. So he's not talking about mechanics. For you and I, it might be something as simple as this. You know, I used to love coming to church. Let's, let's hit home here now that we've got all this information. But now it's, you know, it's too cold or it's too hot. The church has too many people or the church is too small. Or you might say, I used to love to sing to the Lord. Now again, take this back to your first love. Make it applicable, what we're just reading. You take it back in your mind, as I'm asking these simple questions, to your relationship with the Lord when you first got saved, or the first year or two. I used to love to sing to the Lord. Terrible voice, but I sang. But now, you know, there's too many modern songs. Or there's not enough modern songs. You used to pray about how to serve, but now it's, well, I'm, I'm too old to serve. I'm not smart enough to serve. I don't have the talent or abilities like others. It used to be that you would show up early for church. But now you're dragging in late saying, yeah, what's the point of coming early anyways? It used to be that you couldn't wait to have your own devotional time, but now there's no time for devotions. I just have too much to do. It used to be that you were excited about meeting other people and hanging out with like-minded believers. Now it's all about the kids' activities and how to keep them busy and happy. It used to be that your Christian walk was priority, but now, well, you know, once a week. Once a week is all I can afford at this point. Come on. What do you expect me to do? Personally, that's between you and God. I have no expectations. You know, obviously I could go on and on, but I think you get the point. The enemy of our soul is trying to do whatever he can do to get our eyes off of Jesus. And he desires for our lives what Jesus desires for our lives, and to keep our eyes on ourselves and to fulfill our desires for our lives. It's about me. So the questions are, would Jesus be able to say this to any one of us gathered here today? Don't think of anybody, oh, I know God's talking to somebody right over there. I know that person. That wasn't a question. You have to do self-evaluation. This is what Jesus is saying. Did every single Christian need this in the church at Ephesus? Did every single person not love the way that they should love? Probably not. But this is the general application that Jesus says, hey, the church, you got the mechanics, but you've forgotten the love. So when you do a Bible study, you can't just say, well, you know, I got it all together. You might want to ask the Holy Spirit, does that apply to me? And maybe think back to those early days, your first love, and what you used to do with Jesus that you haven't done in 20 years, 10 years, one year. And it's not for guilt or condemnation. It's not to beat yourself up. It's to get back to what Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus. Get back to your first love. The mechanics mean nothing if you don't have the love. Read 1 Corinthians 13. It means nothing if you're not doing it out of love. You're just a noisy gong. Give your body to be burned. It means nothing. Please read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. It means nothing. 
And then would Jesus be able to say this to our church body as a whole? You see, I'm not sure about the first. I don't know all of you. I know about me. But I personally don't think that we're lacking in love on the second question. I hear regularly from visitors as well as newcomers that we have a very loving flock. You know, the mechanics around here might not be perfect, but I don't strive for that. I strive for the love. The mechanics come and go. I strive for love and I strive for a staff that loves people and volunteers that love people and people that love people. That's the goal. Everything else is meaningless. And we do. We hear regularly that this is a loving church. And I definitely agree with that appraisal. But if this does apply and a person does not repent, then they will most likely find themselves moving away from the church, which will help in that process of distancing themselves from the influence of the Holy Spirit via the teaching of God's Word. I don't need to go to church to hear God's Word. That's contradictory to what the Bible says. You don't know your Bible. You're supposed to go to church. If a church does not repent... They will find themselves moving away from what God truly desires to do in the midst, and the church will find itself stale. But how does the church get to that place? Again, I have to look at the pastor. What's the pastor doing? Who is Jesus addressing? He's addressing the pastor. Yes, it applies to the whole church, but he's addressing the pastor. Is the pastor stale? Is the pastor just show up at the last minute? Does he leave right afterwards? Is he involved with anything during the week? What's the pastor doing? possibly even deteriorating and then eventually dying, closing its door to the lack of love for God. Thus, removing what? Verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand. What does the lampstand represent? The church. From its place. Unless you repent. I've already mentioned it. Go over and look at Europe. Where are the churches? The buildings are there, but the church is not there. Because in your mind, maybe, well, the church is a building. The church is there. No, it's not. You are the church. I am the church. People make up the church. That's a building. I don't know if I, I saw an article just a couple days ago. The church in China is growing again the underground church, because they can only meet maybe two or three or four people, literally, not literally underground in a borough, but in privacy and secrecy. There's a revival taking place in Iran. Many Muslims in various uh, Muslim countries are seeing visions of Jesus, and Jesus is telling them, go find a Christian. I'm paraphrasing it. Go find a Christian. When they get up, they find a Christian, and that Christian leads them to Jesus Christ as their Savior. That is happening, guys. What's happening in America? Well, we're not sure what a woman is. Well, you're worthy of the Supreme Court. Let's get you up there right away. Oh, my goodness. Verse 6. But this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You see, there's not a lot of information on the Nicolaitans, but there are two viewpoints. One is that they tried to form a hierarchical system. The pastors or elders were over the people, or what is commonly termed laity. You see this form of system in many churches today, where you have the priest and then you have the laity. For the full-time ministry folks, 
or the full-time ministry folks and then the laity. I personally have, you probably figured it out already, I personally do not like the word laity. I've never used it. I don't believe in it. We're all members of the body of Christ. No one is supposed to reign or have authority over another member of the body. But that doesn't negate the fact that we have offices that should be respected as such, which in the church, as important, pointed out in Ephesians 4, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? Why do we need church? Why do we need to come? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's the number one reason for the pastor to be at church. I am supposed to equip you for the work of the ministry. I'm not supposed to get you to laugh. I'm not supposed to tell you family stories. I'm to teach you the word of God. And if something like that does happen, nothing wrong with that. But the point is, what's the focal point? The word of God. So you can go out and do the ministry, whether it's here on this campus or anytime during the week. But for here, it says, till we all come to the unity of the faith, the faith, not of my faith, of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. Perfect there means mature, complete. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How would Jesus do it? The other view is that it was a group that abused grace and condoned loose living. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. So there's not enough information about this group to be dogmatic about their belief system, but this one thing we should note, Jesus didn't like what they were doing. Whatever, whoever they were, he did not like it. So for us today, there are two things we can definitely conclude about this verse. God doesn't like it when we rule over one another. Doesn't like that. Nor does God condone loose living. Verse 7, so we get ready to wrap it up. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is not talking about physical ears, but to those who are looking to gain spiritual insight. He's going to say this for all seven churches. He who has an ear. So for us this morning... Are you looking for spiritual insight or did you just come for another story, another study, a pat on the head, an exhortation, you're doing a great job, go out there and get them. If you truly seek after the wisdom of God, he will freely give it to you through his word via the Holy Spirit. And hopefully that's why we're here today. Not to just punch the clock, check off a box, meet some religious requirement. No, we're overcomers, because it says here, Jesus says, to him who overcomes. 1 John 5, who's an overcomer? For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Well, whatever is born of God, what is that saying? If you are born again. So if you this morning are a Bible-believing Christian, you are born again, then you are an overcomer. You've overcome this world system. Why get caught up into it again? And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So Mormons are not overcomers. Muslims are not overcomers. Jehovah's Witnesses are not overcomers. All the isms are not overcomers. Anybody who's punching the clock is not an overcomer. You're going to hell. You have Jesus as your Savior, 
or you're playing church and going to hell. Make sure that you're an overcomer. And then we'll wrap it up with this. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to the wise man who built his house on the rock. So we just went over a bunch of scriptures. So if you want to think of yourself as a wise person, a wise man, a wise woman, you want to take the scriptures and your daily devotional and do a daily, get into that daily devotional habit, search the scriptures, who built his house on the rock and the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall. For it was founded on what? The rock. Who is our rock? Jesus Christ. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the stand and the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. It's not talking about losing your salvation. I don't believe. It's just talking about what are you going to build? What are you going to use to build? Gold, silver, precious stones, or hay, wood, and stubble? That will come before the beam of seat of Christ. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. And Lord, it's a good exhortation for us. Are we doing the mechanics just out of doing the mechanics? Or are we do the mechanics because we love people? Because we love your word? Because we want to do what Jesus said. We want to die daily, hourly, minute by minute. That we might serve somebody. That we might love somebody. That they might see our good works and glorify you, Father. Not me. Glorify you. Because apart from you, apart from your Holy Spirit, we can't do anything anyways. We are so self-centered. We need more of your Holy Spirit that we might do those things that you would have us to do. So, Father, we thank you and praise you that you freely give us more of your Holy Spirit. Father, if there's anyone here that needs to just repent, you're offering them repentance, that they would repent. That they'd get back to their first love. They'd forget all the other nonsense that's happened over the years and decades. They would get back into reality. Am I loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And am I loving my neighbor as I love myself? Father, we thank you and praise you that you're such a loving God that you grant repentance to anyone who would ask. Fill us afresh, Lord, as we leave, as we go out into our mission field. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.